is I'm just going to go over the notes that you have there just until we get to our point. Um, so we'll start at assurance and praise. So that's going to be 4CA. Yeah? Here it comes. <laughs> Who needs? Okay, very good. All right, so 4CA on your notes. Verse 31. So remember, Paul is really giving us a lot of assurance and praise in this little section of chapter 8, before, obviously before chapter 9. We see that we're all going to suffer, right? Suffering in the present time. We should expect that to see suffering, to experience some kind of suffering. It may not just be physical persecution, but it could be spiritual persecution. It could be deception. It could be many ways in which you're persecuted by many things. Even a, a foggy brain where you can't really contemplate and concentrate on God's word is a form of persecution in the sense that you're not, uh, you know, an illness or, or even some spiritual warfare. Things that, that get in the way of you being able to clearly understand scripture and clearly uh, read it. Those are all forms of persecution as well. <clears throat> So we look forward to the glory that will be revealed, right? We know that God loves you tremendously. So all the things that we were kind of going through, how nothing can separate you. It's not just separate you from salvation and sanctification and future glorification. It says nothing can separate you from the love of God. He does all these things because he loves you. He, will, he justifies you. He sanctifies you. He glorifies you because he loves you. Not just, to, not just to set you apart from the world, but because he personally loves you. We talked about even predestination. Now, he chose you from before the world was even created. He knew you. He chose you. He predestined you to be one of the elect. And it, it's a hard thing to grapple. We talked about how those are family, our children, and our close friends. Why aren't they chosen? Why are they not predestined? And I don't have the answer to that. But... Like Pastor was saying, God is God, right? God is infinite, and we are finite. And one of the hopes that we can have in the future is that he will wipe our way our tears when we are with him, uh, probably mourning some of the, the people who we wished would have been there, you know, but aren't. And so we will come to a better understanding when we see him. But in the meantime, we know that, that predestination has to do with what God has done for you. Right? Not what you, whether you chose him or not, 
It's all what God has done for you. It's all about him doing the things for you. It's all about him that nothing can separate you because of his love for you. So he in, he's going to sort of end that chapter with assurance and praise. Uh, Paul is. And so verse 31 is, if God is for you, then no one can be against you, right? If God is for you, no one can be against you. Verse 32 since he didn't spare his son for you, he will give you all things. We talked about how the harder thing to do is to give his son as a sacrifice for your righteousness. Of course, he'll then, of course, give you all things. If he's already given you his son, he wouldn't spare anything else for you, right? Verse 33, no charge can you can stand. It is God who justifies. So nothing can come against you. If he's the one who judges, no accusation, no reviling accusation from anything, anybody, including Satan, can tear you apart or remove you from the love of God because it is God who stands in judgment. Uh, he won't condemn you, then neither can anybody else. That's verse 34. Um, and so our sanctification and future glorification will not be hindered. It will not be blocked by anything. That's verse 35. And then verse 36 is a, re is a sort of a repeat of 18 through 27, which is our suffering is not to be unexpected. We should have an expectation that we will suffer, and like we talked about, we should have an attitude of joy towards suffering because suffering is what develops in you characteristics, godly characteristics, right? Patience, long-suffering, kindness, mercy, grace. Going through those trials, going through those difficulties are opportunities for the sanctification process to carry out in you, right? If we don't have those opportunities, we won't have the opportunities to develop quality characteristics that are reflective of God's image in you, right? Um, so now let's just go, we'll go into where we left off last week, which is verse 37. Um, actually, we'll make, we'll read verse 36. It's a quote. So if someone read verse 36, this is a quote of Psalm 44, 22. Verse 38, 36, if you would. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Right, so just in these previous verses, he was listing all the things that, were co that are common sufferings of God's people throughout Scripture, right? So he's just sort of summarizing and saying that the believer has always been considered as a sheep before the slaughter, right? To be slaughtered all the way back. They were all... The remnant of Israel, the believers of Israel, the believers in, that were Jews, they were always, in the same way as New Testament believers are today, um, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's just something that we should expect, and something that we should have the mindset on, that suffering should not be a surprise or unexpected, because like I said, it produces in you good character. Just as Christ suffered, he, you should expect that you will suffer. It doesn't mean you're going to be crucified but it means that he's going to be, you might be persecuted by peers or any other things. So verse 37, so even though we have a mindset and we shouldn't be unexpected by difficulties and sufferings and persecutions, he gives us more encouragement. Uh, so read verse 37, if you would. So that word uh, in the Greek is um, hupernikeo, and that 
really means, it's, it's one word, and it means that one, we are more than conquerors, is one word, herponikeo, and it really means that we're super conquerors, like exceedingly, completely, and overwhelmingly victorious. Um, that it's, it's a phrase that means absolute, right? Absolute and completely a super conqueror. Because we cannot be conquered by any circumstances that were mentioned back in 35, right? Um, we're not just conquerors or super conquerors out of them, on the other side of them. We are super conquerors in and through them. When you're going through and in and through those things, Paul is encouraging you that no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Um, so just by, let me just read verse 35. Shall, who shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Those things, through any of those things, not just on the other side of it, through those things, in the meantime, during those things, you are super, super victorious. You are a super conqueror in those things. That's what he's saying, that even though you should expect suffering, you are a super conqueror during those things. Um, so not only will nothing separate you from the love of God, but we are in the middle of those things, growing, maturing, and gaining and benefiting while we go through those things. And why are we super conquerors? Because of the one who loves you, right? The one who loves you ensures you're a super conqueror. The one who loves you is there with you as you are super conquering because he's the one who's going to super conquer with you, right? So that's the whole point is that this is all revolving around God's love for you, not just a, not just a, a battle of a nation against a nation, but an actual relationship that God has his, his heart and his mind set on you to see you succeed. More, more than any other relationship you might have, his love for you is set. It's there. And, and as a result, you will be a super conqueror. So if Paul is convincing you, are you convinced that the love of God is what it all is about? His love for you is where it's all at, right? But if that's not good enough, he gives you a little more. Verse 38 and 39 gives a second series of circumstances that could also cause us grief. So read verses 38 and 39, if you would, please. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Right, from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a very interesting list. Um, if we take a, just a, a bigger picture of it, we'll see it has like six spheres or six dimensions. The first we'll see is the is of the human experience, right? So neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. There, the next sphere would be the angelic realm, right? So angels, principalities, meaning that no fallen angel, no cherub, cherub is a Satan, a fallen is fallen Satan, right? So death nor life can separate us. That's our existence. The angelic realm, that can't separate us from the love of God. And then we see time, right? Third comes the dimension of time. So nor things present, nor things to come can separate us from the love of God. Fourth is a combination of the human and angelic spheres. So meaning no powers, no human powers, no angelic powers can separate us from the love of God. And then we see a dimension of space, right? We have height. We have depth, it can separate us from the love of God. 
And then sixth is the created realm. So no, nothing, no other creature, no, no, including ourselves, right? No other image, no other person, no other government, no nothing, no principality, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So his conclusion is there's nothing at all that can, absolutely nothing, can separate you from the love of God. The love of God is absolute and complete and whole. And where is that found? It's found in Christ Jesus the Lord. Yeah? Pretty incredible, pretty incredibly encouraging uh, doctrine there. I always personally makes me think of a time when I was in Israel in Hebrew class and our teacher was maybe in her 60s or something and we were learning the word Moshukah is uh, convinced. And of course I thought of that verse, you know. So I thought, well, I can't say the whole thing. I don't, first of all, I didn't know enough Hebrew to say all those words, but um, <laughs> just to, to paraphrase it. And so I made my Hebrew sentence in class. We were just going down the road. Everybody hadn't used the word in the sentence. So I said in Hebrew, I'm convinced uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And she said, oh, that's beautiful, she said in Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> and all like, the Christians in the class are looking at me like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's just the power of God's word. You yeah. Know? I mean, even if you can't say the whole thing, you know, I mean, it just really it is. Absolutely. Okay, so that will that discussion of God's righteousness ends on a cur- encouraging note, right? First chapters one through eight are really Paul teaching. The doctrine of God's righteousness, why we need it, why we can't get to it, only God can provide it. Uh, Paul says, you know, that for the believer there is no guilt because of justification. He, God has declared you righteous, no one can condemn you. There's no condemnation because of that, <coughs> of the sanctification process, which is him molding you into the image of God. And then there's no separation from a future glorification because the love of God, nothing will separate you from the love of God. So we know that, that um, justification is the past aspect of our salvation. When you're saved, there's three tenses, right? Past, present, and future. The past is the justification, the present is sanctification, and the future is glorification. But from God's perspective, they all have already occurred. They've already been done, right? He's not waiting for your glorification either because it's set in stone. You are going to be glorified. It's a done deal. Therefore, no guilt or condemnation can separate you from him because it's already been done. Okay, so like I said, chapters 1 through 8, Paul gives us Um, orthodoxy, right, which is a term for correct doctrine, the idea of how we should think about God, our theology, God's righteousness. Romans 12 through 16 is going to teach us about orthopraxy, which is correct conduct, right? So from 1 through 8 is orthodoxy, correct doctrine. 12 through 16 is orthopraxy, which is correct conduct. So we have 9, 10, and 11 in in, in between those two perspectives. Um, but he has to address an issue, right? Uh, it's kind of an unanswered question, and the question is about Israel, right? So how is God's righteousness going to be revealed when his dealings with Israel, right? Because Israel had rejected their Messiah, but they had been given 
promises, right? Covenants and promises, and they have not been fulfilled. Paul just listed all these promises that we have as believers. Um, but if Israel's promises are unfulfilled, can we, what we should be asking, we know, of course, the answer already, but we would logically be asking the question, well, if God has promised all these things to Israel and Israel re rejected God, can we still believe in the promises that God has given to us, right? So Paul's going to address that scenario um, to guarantee that we truly, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So he's got to answer the question of what about Israel? They rejected him. He gave them all the promises. What about them, right? And so can we have a guarantee that nothing can separate us from the love of God? And that's what he's going to go through in chapters 9 uh, through 1136. So that puts us at 5, uh, God's righteousness and his relationship to Israel. Like I said, it covers 9 to 1136. And um, just as a little summary of it first, Paul's going to answer three basic questions. Does anybody remember Romans 1.16, sort of, the, sort of the, uh, the, the main verse or the outline or the, the main executive summary of the book of Romans? Romans 1.16, if someone would read that. Right, so that's, that's his main sort of thrust for the whole book is the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, but to the Jew first, right, and also to the Greek. So he's going to answer the question, why are there so few Jews being saved when the gospel is to them first? Why do we see a ministry for Gentiles growing and thriving, but the Jews are not? He's going to answer that question. Um, and just a little brief outline of that answer is that he's going to first express his own love and sorrow for Israel. Even though his ministry is to the Gentiles, he has a, a fondness, a sorrowness, a grief towards them um, that he, in fact, he'd be willing to give up his salvation. We'll, we'll see. But he's going to present that it's not God's word or God's promises that failed, it was their rejection of the Messiah, right? That his promises were set, they were true, they were right. Um, but their rejection is what failed, right? Their, 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 I should say their acceptance of the Messiah is what failed, and their rejection is what separated, separated them from fulfilling those promises at that time. And the rejection is also, it's not an injustice from God, right? He still will do to them what he promised them. We're going to go over all these. Um, the problem is that they rejected the righteousness of God, the means at which they can obtain righteousness. They rejected that and tried to do their own way. But we're going to find out that comfort will come, but it will come not, not to all of Israel. It will actually come to just a remnant of Israel. The remnant are always the ones who are the believers in God, right? Um, and so comfort can be found that, that they, the remnant will receive their Messiah. The remnant will turn back to God. And also comfort can come in the fact that Gentiles are being saved too, right? Many Gentiles have been saved since that time. So the current acceptance, there's comfort in that too. 
all all Israel will experience a future I shouldn't say not all Israel. Israel will receive a future regeneration and restoration. Um, and so God's promises have not been voided. God's promises will be fulfilled. There's just this interim time in between when they rejected him and their fulfillment or their reception of the promises. The promises are given. They just have not been received or accepted by Israel just yet. So that's the first question, what about Israel? Um, and the second question is, how do the Gentiles know they can trust God when he promises to Israel, when the promises to Israel have not been fulfilled? That's like I said, it's, a, it's kind of a logical conclusion that we should be asking in light of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, then what separated the love of God to Israel? It was Israel's rejection of their Messiah, but Israel's not voided. They're just in waiting in a sense, right? Um, so th this will be one of the main reasons why Paul writes chapters 9 through 11 um, and so that we can, we can see that the, the promises to believers and the promises to Israel will be fulfilled just in different sort of epochs or even dispensations um, okay so He's going to continue to make some points in, in discussing why their failure happened, and it was related to spiritual pride and self-sufficiency, not because of God's rejection of them, but because of their rejection of him. Um, there's, and then their rejection of the Messiah is not total and complete. It's just that there will only be a, a Jewish remnant who will come to faith in their Messiah, and that's been the case throughout history. Right and still true today. It's always been a remnant. It's always been a small percentage of those who follow and believe in God's word. But that's where God's promises will come to. And then there, but the rejection of the Messiah is not final. Um, the nation, as a nation, will be saved, um, but it's, it will be saved going into the millennial kingdom. Right, the nation. But the nation is made, we're going to kind of discuss what the nation is and what Jews are and who is a Jew and who's not a Jew according to Scripture. Um, okay, so the third question is, has the gospel voided God's promises to Israel? Um, look, look at uh, Romans 2, 29 through 3.1, if you would. And read read that Romans two twenty nine to three one if you would. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? And then verse 2, I think he says, oh, okay, yeah. much in every way, right? Yeah, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Right. So he make, Paul makes a distinction between Jews and Messianic Jews, <laughs> unbelieving Jews and believing Jews in the Messiah. Um, and he, so then he asks the question, what is the benefit to be circumcised, right? To be Jewish, in other words. And he answered much in every way. He doesn't give us very much detail in, in, of what... In ev much in every way means um, 
in chapter 3, but we're going to find out that he's going to really explain this in the next cha uh, chapters. Um, the, the benefit of being a Jew much more deeply is another question that he'll answer. Um, and so that's sort of the outline of 9, 10, 11. He's going to be answering three questions. Um, why are there so few Jews being saved when the gospel to them? Can the Jew Gentiles trust God when his promises to Israel have not been fulfilled? Has the gospel invalidated God's promises to Israel? And that's sort of his, his theme of the next three chapters. Good so far? Okay, so now let's uh, look at Israel's rejection of the Messiah. That's going to be 1 through 29 of chapter 9. First we'll see his, his own sorrow, right? So he has some sorrow of himself. Um, so he's, he's distressed. He's very sorrowful and in mental anguish because of his people have rejected the Messiah. He's just, recall, he's just been discussing how much God has done for everybody, for you, the believer, and all the things that were given to Israel, they've rejected, but God is still loving them and still, and then brings into the fold the Gentiles, but his heart is anguished because all those things were for the people, but they rejected him. And so we're going to see his own sorrow um, play out here so that you can get a feeling for what his own sentiment and mental anguish is. So read verse 1, if you would. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. All right, so he's just preparing the, the next several statements was that it's he's sincere in this sentiment, right? His own conscience and the Holy Spirit are proof that what he is saying is true. And then verse 2 tells us his feeling. So go ahead and read verse 2. That I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Right, so he himself has deep grief, unceasing sort of gnawing pain in his heart. He's filled deeply with great grief and mental anguish because of the condition of Israel, right? The, and this pain was always there. And so he, he offers a, a, a personal solution if he could. So read verse 3 if you would. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Right, so he's even saying that he would give up his salvation and become a curse for his brother's sake. The brothers are fellow Jews, right? Um, he was, let me think about that momentarily. He was willing to spend eternity in a lake of fire for the salvation of Israel, right? He's got some deep feelings here, right? Some deep so sorrow and sadness that he's willing to do that, right? He had that much concern for his own people um, that he was willing to make that trade. Just, just so we know, when he says, I could wish, right, he's expressing a desire, but knows that's not the will of God, right? Um, even if he could give up his own salvation, it wouldn't have resulted in Israel's national salvation, right? He does this a few other times, actually, in 1 Corinthians, meaning that he puts forth his own sort of opinion and his own desire, his own will, but knows that it's not God's will. In 1 Corinthians 7, 7, he wishes that all believers would have the gift of singleship or singleness um, so that they could dedicate their whole lives and all their time to the work of the Lord. Yet he knew that was not the will of God then as well, right? That all would be single. In 1 Corinthians 14.5, he wished that all believers would have the gift of tongues 
or even better, the gift of prophecy. Yet here again, he knew that was not in God's will for all believers to have that. And then it's the same idea here, Romans 9.3. He wished for certain things, but he already knew that they were not in the will of God. So he personally would be willing to give up his salvation, knowing that, but he knows that he couldn't do that anyways, and that that wouldn't result in what, what he really wanted, right? Okay, so now he goes on to the privileges of Israel, and why in much in every way there is a benefit to be Jew, right? Much in every way. Um, and so he's going to validate uh, what he said in Romans 3.1, much in every way, that the, it's, there's a benefit to being Jew or to be circumcised. Um, they have many advantages, and they're great. So let's look at uh, verses 4 and 5, if, if you'd read 4 and 5, please. Okay, so verse 4 begins an explanation of who or what Israelite, Israelites really are, right? He gives us sort of eight points. So first, look over to Exodus 4, 22 through 23. So the first thing is the adoption, right, that Paul is listing. Adoption, meaning the Israelites are adopted. The, the, the adoption is theirs. They've owned the adoption. And what adoption is that is uh, as sons. So read Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Okay, so that's a heavy verse, but we see here that God says of Israel, my son, right? My firstborn son, let my son go. So he views the nation of many, many ten thousands of people are one son, one group, his son, let my son go. So God has adopted the nation as his son. Another a similar verse is Hosea 11.1. 1. It says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So it's a national adoption, right? And, and Israel, who adopted them was God. So they're, they're, he's not going to disinherit them. They never will be disinherited. Um, Israel has the national adoption and sonship of God. No other people group has that. So the first benefit that Paul lists is this adoption. Um, and then, so Paul's second point is the glory, right? The glory that belongs to the Israelites. And the glory is in the Shekinah glory. Um, it's the Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of God. Um, does anybody remember where that occurred early on? The visible manifestation of God, being able to see the crossing of the Red Sea is one of them for sure, right? Um, burning bush. Burn, oh, yeah. 
Well, that was to Moses even, right? But even as a nation. The transfiguration. The, well, to the Israelites, um, but, when they were being led out of the Egypt, what was leading them? Yeah. During the day and at night, right? A fire and during the day a cloud. So those were revelations or, or God's physical manifestation to the people, all of Israel. They could all look up and see this manifestation of God. So Paul is saying that's the glory that belongs to them because God didn't do that to any other group, any other people group. That belongs to the Israelites. Um, that's Exodus 13.20 and 16.10. Um, Paul's third point is that the covenants belong to the Israelites. So we have the adoption, we have the glory, and we have the covenants, right? There's four unconditional covenants with Israel, and they all stem really from one covenant, and that's the Abrahamic covenant. Within that Abrahamic covenant, we have land, seed, worldwide blessing, right? So we have the land covenant, we have the Davidic covenant, which would be the seed, right? And then the new covenant, and those all belong exclusively to Israel. We can be partakers of those covenants, but we're not overtakers of those covenants, meaning the church, right? The church has not replaced Israel and those covenants and promises, but God has promised unconditionally, meaning that it, it's irrelevant how they treat him, how they respond to him, how they follow him. He will make those things happen, right? Those are the unconditional covenants. The law is Paul's fourth point, um, but the law is a conditional covenant, right? It's the one conditional covenant that he made with Israel. He only made a conditional covenant with Israel. He hasn't made any conditional covenant to the church or any other nation. The United States is not under any kind of covenant with God. Um, covenant meaning an, an understanding, an agreement, right? Um, it was uniquely given to Israel. No other nation um, has ever had that or ever will, um, those, then there's many passages for that. So the covenants belong to Israel, um, and then the worship of God belongs to Israel as well, right? Where was the services carried out to worship God? Um, in the, the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle and the temple. That's where many services were done, where the worship of God took place. Um, it was in the temple of God, and that included Offerings, priesthoods, sacrifices, you know, the, the whole Levitical institution of following the Mosaic law was there. So that was a form of worship, right? Um, so that's the, the worship of God belonged to them and the teaching of what worship means. And then Paul's sixth point is that the promises belong, uh, the promises belong to the Israelites. Um, and the promises are the, the, are those that are contained in the law, right? The Mosaic law, the prophets and the writings, their general promises, um, as well as messianic promises. Um, and they span all of, all of time, basically, from when Israel began, from the calling of Abraham, and then all the way into the end of the millennial kingdom, God has promised the nation of Israel many things. So those promises are belonging to the Israelites. Uh, this Paul's seventh point is that the patriarchs belong to them, right? The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they belong to him. And then the final point is that they 
own or they have in their possession the Messiah himself, right? We as Gentiles, we're, uh, we're wild branches grafted into the true branch of Israel because God has promised Israel those things. And from them came the Messiah in which we could be justified, sanctified, and glorified. And they have that, right? So there's, we can see there's much in every way of a benefit of being Jewish, right? Because as for his nationality, Jesus was a Jew, right? And his sovereignty, he was over all of us and over all of them and over all things. And he's God-blessed forever, right? So not these last sort of sentences by Paul, not only is Jesus a Jew in the flesh, but he is also God who rules over all. He is the Messiah, the Messiah God-man. That's an Israel ownership in the sense that he, he's the representation of them and they, they have that as their possession as well. Um, so he's going to go in and saying just even though that they have all these things, right, that belong to them and nobody else, um, these privileges, these benefits obviously don't equate to salvation, right? You can have a benefit and not take advantage of the benefit basically, right? Um, the privileges give the Israelites reasons to believe and have faith in God for all that he has done for them, but their failure to believe puts them under judgment too, under severe judgment as well. And it could be said the same, so it could be said the same for Gentiles as well, right? When Paul talks about that in chapter one, how you could look up and see the created universe and know there's a God and you should respond positively to it. And if you don't, you're under God's wrath rather than God's grace. Um, okay, so let's look at, well, we're almost, we'll get through a little bit here, almost done. Um, so the lens of biblical history, right? This is actually the key to this entire unit is verse 6a, right? Verse 6a is the key to understanding those questions that Paul is answering. So read verse 6a, if you would. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Right. That's it. <laughs> the word of, it's, so God's word is not to be blamed for, the reject, for Israel's rejection, right? Um, his promises and word have not failed, right? Um, it, and it's all, it has not failed because we see that the plan and purpose of God was actually Israel's rejection, right? Because by Israel's rejection, we come into the fold. Right? We, they're blinded for our sake, it even says, right? Their veil is over them for our sake. And so his promises are not failed. They will come to fruition. Um, his plan and purpose will come to fruition without a doubt. Um, it wasn't suddenly frustrated by Israel's rejection of Christ. Um, in fact, Israel's rejection was very much part of the big picture, the big plan. If Israel, the reality is, if Israel didn't reject their Messiah, we wouldn't have a chance to know the Messiah, right? We wouldn't have that chance because the kingdom would have came already, according to Christ, right? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. How, how I wish to put you under my wings and do, and do those things, but they rejected him, right? And so by their rejection, we are able to come into the fold. Um, are we good with that? All right, so... He's going to give an explanation um, delineating what Israel is. So read 6b, if you would. 
for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. All right, so this is an important aspect to understand here. Um, he's not distinguishing Israel between Israel and the church, right, or between Jews and the Gentiles. Um, it's actually distinguishing within Israel what um, believing Jews are and unbelieving Jews are. The remnant Jews are the ones that are receiving the, pro the promises and the covenants and all the blessings of the things. So it's Paul is distinguishing not for they are not all Israel. So you take all of the nation of Israel, but they they are not all of Israel. Does that does that make sense? Right? He's distinguishing between the remnant and the non-remnant of Jews. Right? All Israel refers to um, the descendants or those who are following uh, the believing Jewish remnant, the natural seed that is stemmed from Jacob. Right? And then of Israel refers to the entire nation. Right? We know when we read Revelation and, and other passages that um, many Jews will die again, right? just like the Holocaust. Many Jews that will reject God. Israel right now is a secular humanist nation. They don't follow God's plan and purpose from themselves. God's plan and purpose will continue no matter what they do, but they as a whole, as a nation, are rejecting their Messiah. But there's a remnant of Jews that are believing in the Messiah, and that's who the promises and all those things that will that Paul talked about will be will be fulfilled in them. So there kind of are two Israels, right? In the sense, the Israel of God, which is the Son, the, the adopted sons, the believing Israel, um, and then Israel as whole. That's the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is all Jews, right? So he's making the contrast between. Jews who believe and Jews who don't believe. Um, so Israel, right, com comprise the entire nation and the whole physical Israel. And then within that is the spiritual Israel, right? The idea of those Jews who are believers. I'm not, I, I don't want to say that at all that the spiritual Israel is the church. The church is not spiritual Israel. The church has not replaced Israel in any form or fashion. It's those Jews of the descendancy of Jacob, that are believers in the Messiah and follows God's plan that God is calling sons, right? Um, and then this is actually an elaboration of what he said in Romans 2, 28 through 29, and I'll, I'll read that. So Romans 2, 28, 29 is, he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, right? Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly in circumcision that is of the heart, in the spirit, not in a letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So he's making that distinction, right? Even though all Jews would be, all men and males would be circumcised, it's one who's circumcised in the heart, right? That is actually who a Jew is according to biblical scripture, right? Whose praise is not of men, but of God. Because there are many Jews who are circumcised, but are not circumcised of the heart, right? Are believing Jews. So, um, okay, we will end there for now and pick up at verse 7. Okay, any thoughts or comments or questions? Getting, getting through the, the definitions. We're blessed to be in this church and have this. <laughs> There's so many that wouldn't see it that way. 
Uh, the scripture, the scripture is pretty clear. If we just stick to the scripture, right? It's like I, I, some somebody said. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, we bow our hearts before you, Lord, and just in gratitude and gratefulness and thankfulness that you have given us a way out, that you've given us justification, that you're sanctifying us, that you will glorify us, Lord, and that nothing we do, nothing that can happen to us, no circumstance, no difficulties can separate us from your love, Lord. We're, we stand in awe. We're speechless. What can we say? We don't even know what to do with all the blessings and mercies and, and graces that you have given to us. Lord, so we ask that you would just help us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Whatever we might do would be the glory of you. We pray for the church service, Lord, be pleasing to you as a corporate body. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.